Today we come to a huge topic within the book. Uh, by the time that you reach the end of Proverbs 7, so you're one-fourth of the way approximately through the book, you will have already encountered and read about over 75 verses about sexual purity and sexual immorality. God does not take long to begin to talk about it, and he talks long about it. So there's no way, no way that we're covering all of those. We're going to do what we can. We're going to dive in fast. We're going to swim hard. And when we're done, we will thank the Lord for whatever parts of his word we have been privileged to hear. Once again, parents, just I want to be sensitive. Many here are too young of children to understand or grasp what we're talking about. But if you feel that it might be something your child is not quite re yet ready for, you can slip out, uh, maybe during the prayer. Um, but if you're a teenager, you need to hear this on repeat, on max volume, over and over and over and over and over and over. Just like God does here in the book of Proverbs. So, very quickly, just to give you like part of what I'm hoping as we work through Proverbs is we see uh, some of the pattern or some of the way that God has set up the book. So we've talked about the fact that the first nine chapters are unique in that they often deal with a particular uh, facet for a number of verses kind of in a cluster. And then starting in chapter 10 and going really through chapter 30, it becomes much more isolated and individual uh, Proverbs that jump from topic to topic to topic often. But here in these opening nine chapters in particular, this theme is quite often referenced. So the first reference to sexual immorality is chapter 2, verse 16, at least in a specific way. You certainly could see some principles even before this. Uh, but verse 16 is where we get the first reference by the term forbidden woman certainly not limited to women. It's not the gender here that's significant. God often uses women for wisdom, to represent wisdom, to represent folly, to represent the excellent wife, uh, spouse, and here to represent what God forbids, which really stands for any and every form of sexual immorality, impurity, deviation from God's plan. Then, Chapters 3 and 4 have some beautiful things about emphasizing the necessity and importance of wisdom. And then chapter 5, we would say, has two teaching sessions or parent talks, verses 1 to 6. And these are marked by uh, verses that begin with, my son, the call to listen. So uh, verses 1 to 6 being 1, verses 7 to 23 being a second talk. Then other topics are addressed in the first half of chapter 6. But in verses 20, you'll see the son reference again, listening. There's one more heart-to-heart -heart talk that runs all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 35. And then chapter 7, we might say, has two more talks, one of which is a parable, verses 1 through 23. And then a short one following up after that. So, five big lessons on this topic just in the opening seven chapters. And then... There's silence, quotes, not a lot said about it until chapter 22 
And then from there through chapter 30, a sprinkling of a few more that we'll just lightly touch upon. Certainly not time to look at all of them, but a couple of preface thoughts that I hope will help us digest these strong words in Proverbs more theologically, helpfully, accurately. So why so many verses on this one specific expression of folly or sin? Number of reasons I came up with just five that we'll just touch on quickly. One, because it is such a violation of God's design. Whether you think of Genesis 1 and 2, whether you think of Romans 1, we'll look just briefly at 1 Corinthians 6, all kinds of other places. Song of Songs, we see lots of God's intention and design of one man, one woman in one covenant for one lifetime And that expression alone being what pleases and honors God as he is intended. So such a violation. Secondly, there's such strong drive in so many human beings. And if you don't have that strong drive, you can thank God for that grace. You might have problems on the other side, obeying what God, if you're in a marriage, obeying what God has called you to. But... It is for many people, so many people, including believers, the longest spiritual battle, meaning over this course of their life, the most reoccurring temptation week in and week out, some of the most intense spiritual battle, some of the most besetting temptations, and sadly for too many, some of their most besetting sin. Not only for men, but increasingly even for women. Third, because it has such devastating and damaging consequences that God has put forth. Uh, Some of the strongest language, uh, we can argue about whether sins are all uh, equal or not, but God certainly in his word seems to speak often with particularly strong language in this area. Proverbs shows us how this sin and folly can destroy a man or a woman or a family or a marriage with more deception, power, speed, and impact than anyone ever thinks it will when they enter into it. Fourth, because it's such a pervasive sin for mankind all over, every nation, everywhere, throughout all of history, and certainly now in our culture as well. And the fifth one may sound odd to you if you have not heard this, studied this, understood this, been taught this before. Because what we experience in pure, holy, sexual pleasure, the way that God's designed it to be expressed, is a foretaste, maybe one of the clearest tastes of the exhilarating pleasure we will experience with God and our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, in heaven for all of eternity. Sexual wisdom is much more than just about our physical body, or social lives, or emotional beings. It is, first and foremost, a spiritual thing. And it is far more spiritual than it is physical or emotional. Tim Keller puts it this way. Sex is glorious. Sex between a man and a woman points to the love between the father and the son. It is a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. Sex is glorious not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points to the eternal delight of soul that we will have in heaven in our loving relationship with God and one another. Romans 7 and following tells us that the best marriages are pointers 
to the deep, infinitely fulfilling and final union we will have with Christ in love. It's the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely to be imagined look at the glory that is our future. That's why it matters so much to God. 1 Corinthians 6 alludes to this, and I'm taking you to the New Testament. We'll come back to the New Testament toward the end, as we often do, to think about how the New Testament speaks to Proverbs. But I, th- I want to preface our study in Proverbs with this because I think it's tremendously helpful. Really, we're given here five significant reasons why God commands everything he does and disciplines for sexual immorality the, the way that he does. Number one in verse 13 is that our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but they're meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Secondly, in verse 15, that our bodies are members of Christ, that we are united with him, and it is impossible, impossible to participate as a believer in sexual immorality apart from the presence of Christ and the union with Christ. And that's Paul's point in those next sentences. Then in verse 17, a third reason is that when one is joined to the Lord, you become one spirit with him. And then one of the two really powerful commands, one you'll hear a number of times, and if you want a single thought to carry with you and to say often, maybe daily to yourself, if this is a particularly besetting struggle, It is this, like Joseph, flee, run as fast as you can, as far as you can, as often as you need to from sexual immorality. And then as if that's not enough, God gives us even more of a reason that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that we've been given from God. And then a way to summarize it all, all the sexual choices you're making, you are not your own. Your body isn't your own. You're bought with a price, an incredible price that God has paid. So glorify God in your body. So Proverbs chapter 2. Now, I crammed most of a chapter on one slide. That's not visually very good. But here's what I wanted you to just visually see. The opening of chapter 2, some of my favorite verses about how do you become wise. When James tells us, If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generous. Here in the first four verses are how we ask. Receiving his words, receiving God's commandments, making our ears attentive, listening, leaning in, inclining our heart to want to understand God's perspective, calling out for insight, raising our voice for understanding, seeking it like we do, treasures of money, searching for it as if it's a hidden treasure. And then verse 5 You'll see the word then after all those ifs. Then it begins to unpack. And in a very general way, we begin to understand the fear of the Lord when we do those first four verses. And we find his knowledge. And God is just giving us wisdom and pouring it out so that we come to understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path because wisdom comes into our heart. And then... The chapter begins, the second half of the chapter begins to specify two things that wisdom particularly delivers us from. And I've eliminated the first one for lack of space on the slide, but it says to deliver us from the way of evil and from men of perverted speech. 
and describes those for a little bit. And then verse 16, toward the end of the chapter, unpacks the second thing that this kind of wisdom from God will do. It will deliver us from what God has forbidden, any and every deviation from his very narrow rules for purity. And then he goes on to describe that smooth words will often be a part of our fall and wisdom will help us discern when any kind of advertisement, any kind of solicitation, any kind of seduction is taking place. Secondly, wisdom will help us to not forsake the companion of our youth, and here particularly within marriage, uh, or if we're anticipating that God may have us marry someday, just not forsaking that person even before the covenant has been made. And then third, wisdom helps us not forget the covenant with our God. And then as Proverbs will do so often, God delineates some of the consequences. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. In other words, they will never, ever be the same as it was before. So Father, we pray Proverbs 2 even this morning as we delve further into what you're going to unpack in chapters 5, 6, 7, and beyond. Would you please, as we cry out, as we ask, as we want wisdom, as we need it in our increasingly perverse world, would you graciously grant it to us so that we will see the evils of sexual sin more vividly, powerfully, convictingly, and the pleasures of your designed plan, whether that's waiting until we're united with you bodily as singles or whether that's within a marriage covenant. Would you help us, deliver us, forgive us, heal us, help us repent, draw us evermore to the likeness of your son in this area of the Christian life as well, I pray. Through your word, speak powerfully now for the sanctification of your people, which is your will. We ask in your name, amen. I'm warning you, I'm already 10 minutes behind. Cancel lunch plans. All right, very quickly, just to try and help you see, because sometimes just verse after verse after verse can seem to just all run together. Verses that God uses what we might call the negative principle Lots and lots of warnings about pretty serious and significant consequences. In chapter 5, which is the chapter we're going to unpack, we're going to not be able to do that with 6 and 7, we'll see that in two pockets, first half of the chapter and the very, very ending of the chapter, the last two verses. In chapter 5, uniquely from the other chapters, God gives also positive principle, which is the urgings of the beautiful ways to enjoy sexual uh, pleasure as God is designed. And then, though only one verse, it is a earth-shaking principle. I just call the God principle, reminding us of our all-knowing, ever-present, ever-holy God that's always with us. Three powerful ways that God motivates us for sexual purity. So, first of all, what we might call the negative, opening in verses one and two, with that call, this is the opening of each of these little talks, is just a reminder, what I'm about to say to you, whether it's as a parent, 
as an older individual, as somebody who has been there and is now teaching you, a mentor, whatever ways, my son, be attentive. Pay particularly close attention so that you will keep discernment. You'll guard knowledge. Listen more than ever. Four, we will either listen to wisdom or listen to our lust. Or as Charles Bridges puts it, if wisdom is not loved, lust will be indulged. Lots of reasons that God gives. We're just going to unpack some of these. So he once again starts just like he did in chapter 2 with the seduction, the enticement, the allurement is incredibly smooth, attractive, dripping with honey. Next slide if we could. Here God puts both in, the, in verse 3, both the enticing beginning, how we can be so swept up in it, and side by side in the next sentence, the wretched ending. He wants us to see those and how they go together because they're inseparable. Charles Bridges again, a cup of pleasure for or is traded, replaced by an ocean of wrath. Or Matthew Henry, the fire of lust kindles the fire of hell. That's what's caught in that verse 5 that gets even stronger language. Her feet go down to death. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 18? Her house sinks down to death. God is going to tell us over and over and over. It's always heading into a cemetery. It's always heading into a spiritual grave. It's always heading toward death, toward Sheol, the place of the dead, who may in this life be enjoying their sexual sins, but are dead, dead, dead in understanding their true pleasures. Verse 6, here's part of the problem. Here's what fools do. They do not ponder the path of life. They do not think long term. They just wander and do whatever attracts them now, whatever they're drawn to, and they don't realize how deadly the territory is that they're entering into. In Proverbs 31, verse 3, I think it'll show up on a slide later, that one of the ways of sexually promiscuous people is they eat, they wipe their mouth, and they say, I've done nothing wrong. They see nothing wrong. They just don't understand the very poison that it is that they are consuming. So, just thinking carefully about the consequences, folly is short-sighted. It's what I feel right now. It's what I crave. It's what I want. I'm going to feed that flesh. And wisdom sees long-term, sees the result of it, and says no. Now we begin in verse 7, the second talk. Again, appeal to listen and not depart. And then verse 8, I mark as one of those big general principles. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door. In other words, the closer we allow ourselves to a temptation for it, the more likely it is that we will give in. Sexual sin, perhaps more than many other sins, has an increasing gravitational pull. And to think, I can handle it, it doesn't affect me, is to invite spiritual disaster. So anticipate for yourself, what are those things I cannot get near? 
because I just am not strong enough. John MacArthur reminds us, it is not just weak men or women who fall, but strong men in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong thoughts and for the wrong reasons. So 1 Corinthians 10 warns us about thinking we can handle it, thinking we won't give in, thinking that we're above it. And I don't have it on the slide, but verse 13, the next verse after verse 12, tells us with every sexual temptation, there is a way of escape. But God's way of escape is often before we enter into it. It's the easiest exit ramp. It's the fastest way out. Because otherwise, a glance turns into a gaze. A single look turns into a second one, a third one, more. A noticing becomes a staring and a studying and a fantasizing. An incidental becomes an intentional. A thought becomes a fantasy. An attractive whatever becomes an attraction. More consequences then in verses 9 and 10 that God lays out. And really it runs all the way through verse 14. And the idea he gives us is the pure gift that he initially gives us in life, we can just give away to others uh, tragically and never be able to get it back. Part of one of the things that God really presses about the consequence is the regret, the sadness and the sorrow over that. And we're not going to get to chapter 7, but the very ending of the parable is how all at once, how suddenly, how in a moment, a young man can make a decision, like an ox going to a slaughter, a stag caught fast till the arrow hits his liver, or a bird rushing into a snare. Three different examples. But here's the line. He does not know, he does not realize, he is ignorant, he is a fool, that it will cost him his life. His parents' warnings have not sunk in deep enough. He has not listened well enough and taken them to heart as God has said. And the cost then of the choices made can last for the rest of life, as verse 11 alludes to. Now, we come to verses 15 to 21. They're obviously the next ones in the chapter, and it's where God turns to the positive. But before we do that, I want to jump ahead to verses 22 and 23, just as a continuation of the negative principle, the consequences that are unpacked. <clears throat> Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. Now we get a new word picture. And he's held fast in the cords of his sin. Here's the way Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes at the end of his life after incredible sexual immorality. I hear these words. I discovered more bitter than death. The woman, the person, the attraction, the sexual immorality, whose heart, that's what's at the heart of sexual sin, is snares and nets, and whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape her, because he flees. But the sinner, the fool, will be snagged, captured, caught up, trapped by her. Warren Wiersbe, if we abuse our freedom and deliberately disobey his word, our freedom will gradually become bondage. It is impossible to sin without being bound. 
The cords of sin get stronger the more we sin, yet sin deceives us that we are free and can quit sinning whenever we please. As the invisible chains of habit are forged, we discover to our horror that we don't have the strength anymore to break them. In verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. Do you remember how much that was emphasized last week on parenting? Teach your children self-restraint, self-discipline, self-control. And because of, and notice the description, his great folly, his huge mistake, he is led astray, and there's no one else to blame. So the ironic twist of sexual sin is at the very same time that it is intensely pleasurable, it is also sucking the very life out of an individual and often a marriage and often a family. Injecting that individual evermore with a poison that is going to be fatal in the end. And yet, all the while, the victim is so obsessed with the short-term pleasure, it just keeps going. More, if you look at chapter 6, we're coming back to chapter 5 yet, but if you look at chapter 6, more sin or consequences than almost that whole second half of chapter 6 lays out more neg- what we might call the negative principle. Let me just highlight a very few verses. This just makes the sermon longer, but I gained a couple minutes. So let me just point your eyes in ver- chapter 6. We really won't take time to unpack it much. Do not dis- is- verse 25 is another key principle. Like, don't go near, don't desire her beauty, where? In your heart. Don't let her capture you. And now it shows how easily we can be caught with her eyelashes, with that physical attraction, that look, those words, whatever it might be. And Jesus again reminds us, or really expounded this out in Matthew 5, 28, that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lust for that individual, has already committed adultery in his heart, which is what this verse warns us about. And then verses 27, 28, and 29 are just a good word picture. Is it possible for a man or a woman to carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That's what we're trying to do when we're dallying into sexual sin. Can you walk on hot coals and your feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her, none who delves into that realm will go unpunished. The word picture we often hear, and I think it's helpful here, is that fire within the boundaries of a fireplace in that one unique, very guarded place is warm, beautiful, and good. But get it outside of the fireplace in a home and it becomes a painful, tragic monster. And then from chapter 7, just a couple of word pictures, verse 25. This is what I'd call the third big principle. So we've talked about don't go near, don't desire beauty or be caught up in that. And third in verse 25 of 7, don't let your heart turn aside. There's the heart again, to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, which certainly technology has made incredibly easy for us to do. And verses 26 and 27, pretty graphic closing line. For many are the victims she has cast down, 
and numerous, incredible numbers are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, same thing chapter 2 told us way back at the beginning, descending to the chambers of death. You think of just this one sin area and how many lives have been wrecked, marriages ruined, hearts of spouses, children, parents, and families ripped apart, unwanted pregnancies, unwanted children, abortions, murder, forced marriages, sexually transmitted diseases, rapes, tears, broken hearts, wrenching regrets. It's pretty graphic. In 1 Corinthians 10.8, we're told that for sexual immorality in Israel, 23,000 died in one day. That's a pretty significant hit by God. Very few things have drawn that kind of ire. And in 1 Corinthians 10, partly because it's idolatry. It's what we're ultimately worshiping. Okay, lots more we could do there, but let's move on for the sake of your time. I could be here all day. Let's come back to verses 15 to 20 now as a second way that God brings motivation for purity. And now it's within his design. When human sexuality is expressed and experienced outside of God's design, it can be among the most devastating aspects of human life. But when it's expressed and experienced within God's design and boundaries, and Song of Song unpacks this even more, it can be some of the most beautiful facets of human life. So God doesn't want us just to limit our expression to marriage because we want to avoid the bad things but also because we want to enjoy the good rewards that God has intended. Now, God uses here five word pictures in verses 15, 16, 17, and the beginning of 18. Cistern, well, springs, streams, fountain. All of them around water, which is depicting the diligent keeping of our water being pure in our cistern, well, springs, streams, and fountain, from which we drink every single day and how our sexual purity is the same kind of thing, where if we don't keep it pure, if it becomes contaminated, it can be unhealthy for us, even deadly for us. And it must not come into contact with that which is dirty, and that the purer it is, the better and healthier it is, and the better tasting. So all of these stress the absolute necessity of sexual purity. And now... Verses 18 through and 19 particularly unpack. And their commands, let your fountain, let the water of your life be contained and kept in the boundaries that God has sent and let it be beautifully expressed. The fountain, different from the cistern and well in particular, has moving water that is a display that it, but it is kept within that, but is gloriously beautiful. God is saying here, let your sexual experiences, your fountain, be blessed by God. Experience his favor to the fullest extent so that you have the maximum pleasure and enjoyment in sexual experience that God gives to human beings. Rejoice is a key thing in the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. Find all of your sexual happiness in that one individual that you've covenanted with if you're married. Realize that you have God's best already given to you in your youth. And don't doubt that. Don't let it become old hat. Don't neglect it. Don't just go through the motions. Don't stop is the basic idea. Keep enjoying. Rejoice in it. Have a blast. God puts no limits on that. 
ability to enjoy it and how often and how much. So, perhaps for some of us, just a call that if your marriage and your sex life are not a cause for rejoicing, that is a place that is important for guarding our purity. Randy Elkhorn here. When God calls on you to pursue purity, you are not being asked to do what will deprive you of joy. That's the lie of the world. In fact, you're being called on to do what will bring you the greatest joy. To choose purity is to put yourself under God's blessing. To choose purity is to put yourself... To choose impurity is to put yourself under God's curse. Your decision, you cast your vote with every choice that you make. Third command in this, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Enjoy each other's bodies. In the Lord, that's what they're given to you. That's why he's given that enjoyment and procreation and want nothing more than that. In fact, enjoy it so much you don't even think about any other options or possibilities. And then one more way of saying this, Be intoxicated, the ESV translates it. New American says exhilarated, I like that. Always in her love, be captivated, enthralled, totally enraptured, infatuated, at all times, consistently, daily. So Beth and I, if I counted right, are on day number 15,345 of our covenant. Never letting it tired, Never, ever thinking there's something that might be better. Keeping the fires burning, desiring it, seeking it, pursuing it. Is it hard at times? Yes. Is it challenging? Yes. But so worth it. And that's the place where God has given us to enjoy. So Keller again here. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently in this life and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less, young people. A marriage covenant is necessary for sex. Sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. And then verse 20 just turns it into a rhetorical question, which is basically the point, why would anybody be so foolish or stupid as to be intoxicated with something that's forbidden? Why? It makes no logical sense in everything that God has said. So once again, as Bridges said at the beginning, when wisdom is not loved, lust will be indulged. A third way, one verse, but I think an incredibly powerful verse, if there's nothing else that impacts you in this area, let this verse ring loud, loud, loud in your life every day. And it's far beyond the sexual purity that this should impact and motivate us. But the biggest reason, and if you are single and don't have the commands of the other verses to fulfill that God's given you yet, then verse 21 perhaps becomes even more powerful for you. This is the drum Proverbs keeps beating, even though it doesn't literally say the fear of the Lord. That's what's in the foundation for the whole book and everything that's conveyed And so it is here as well. Several of the verses that drive this home. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities, our sins, our sexual sins, our secret sins before you and in the very light of your presence. Hebrews 4, 13. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do or to whom we will give an account. 
Proverbs 14, 27 doesn't say sexual immorality, but here's the principle behind it. The fear of the Lord is a fountain. Catch that word picture there? A fountain of life, turning a man or a woman from the snares of death. Or as Numbers 23, 32, 23 says, you can be sure that your sin will find you out by God. We must be gripped with this daunting reality. And in, in sexual sins particularly, they thrive in privacy. They work in darkness. And often very, very personal, very, very private. But the reminder here is never from God. Most of us are far more afraid of being caught by man than we are of what God thinks of whatever we're doing that's sexually impure. But God is always there and to practice any other thing. And I would just remind you here, do you remember that description in Proverbs 2 of the, adult, the forbidden woman? She forgets her covenant with the Lord. With the time that's left, let's turn briefly to the New Testament. And we have no time to unpack these any more than to point them out. So you already have 1 Corinthians 6. I'll remind you of that a little bit later in our closing, closing, closing conclusion. <clears throat> but other verses that speak to this. And I just want you to hear how it reinforces what Proverbs has been saying. Jesus coming and the gospel truths have not changed the call for purity. 1 Thessalonians, starting in verse 1. You've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Verse 3 unpacks that. This is the will of God, your sanctification, and then unpacks that or defines it, that you abstain in every way, form, fashion, shape from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body, which 1 Corinthians tells us is really belonging to God and to our spouse, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the rest of the American culture, the Gentiles, who do not know God. What a difference that makes. Total night and day. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. What a promise to those who have been abused and hurt in this realm by others. Vicious and awful sexual sin. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And anyone who disregards this isn't disregarding Paul. He's disregarding God, who's given us his Holy Spirit to keep us pure. Ephesians 5, 3-6, which we just read in our morning scripture readings a few Sundays ago. Sexual immorality, all impurity, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness. He goes on to identify some other things. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What a line. Anyone who considers that more significant to fulfill in this life has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For it's because of these things the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. 
Very similar thoughts in Colossians 3, though not as much detail. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, both singles and marrieds. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then 2 Timothy 2.22, which doesn't mention sexual immorality, but there's the word flee again like we saw in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee youthful passions, many of which can revolve around a sexual drive as the body comes alive with those hormones. Flee them, particularly during your youth. And replace that with chasing after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And do so along with a whole host of friends and a church body who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Grace explodes in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't lessen the message from Proverbs and the seriousness of this sin. If anything, it intensifies our motivation to be pure people. Concluding thoughts very, 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 very quickly way quicker than they should be. One, briefly, parents. Next slide, please. Teach, teach, teach. Teach sex education. Talk openly and plainly about the things that your children will be faced with and encountered and tempted by. Plant those seeds often. Plant them deep. Water them over and over and over. And young people, children, listen Don't ever in this area say, I know, and roll your eyes. You have no idea. No idea. It is awful. Listen. Listen well. Take it in. Take it to heart. And thank God, like Proverbs 2 says, to keep you pure. What a gift it is. Just briefly, perhaps for those who are in sin now, and I realize that looking around a room this size, There can be people in an affair right now. There can be people in all kinds of sin. There can be all kinds of people looking at pornography. Several words just briefly. Don't give up in this battle. Don't think I can't conquer it. Uh, I I don't have it on a slide, but uh, Ecclesiastes 7.19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. We never lack the power if we're a believer. God has given us that. So don't despair. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't deceive yourself that God can't or won't forgive you or you'll never conquer this besetting sin. Ray Ortland's words here are good. There is only one true friend for sexual fools. His name is Jesus Christ, the crucified one. Secondly, confess. Honestly, genuinely. Crawl to God with brokenheartedness over what you have done or are doing and sorrow over it. Garrett Kell reminds us, the longer you wait to confess, the more likely it becomes you never will. Third, receive and accept and embrace God's forgiveness. Some of you perhaps have had sexual sins committed against you and you feel guilt for it. It's hard. It's hard, but it's not your guilt to own. But those of us in it too, Sometimes don't receive the forgiveness, which is so freeing when we embrace that. Kel again, no matter what form your, broken, your sexual brokenness takes, Jesus comes to save you from it. No matter where you have been, what you have done, or what has been done to you, the grace of God can wash you clean. Hallelujah. 
consecrate you as his child and restore what sin has stolen. Continuing this thought, be willing to accept the consequences and the discipline that may come because of choices you have made. But in all of this, repent, repent, move forward. And the, it's so illustrative what Jesus said to the woman that was caught in adultery. And imagine just being that woman, number one, being caught by the religious leaders and hauled by them, but then being in front of Jesus as well. But his words to her, knowing her confession and her sorrow and her brokenness over what she had done, your sins are forgiven, or I do not condemn you. Now go, and from this freeing forgiveness moment, sin no more. Paul Tripp, sin is a huge destructive disaster, but grace is a bigger, more powerful restorer. Garrett Kell, before a sin, Satan tempts you to believe repentance will be easy. After a sin, Satan tempts you to believe repentance is impossible. And then warn others, especially the young, single people and married people. Be a living testimony of the truthfulness of God's word when he tells us what he does. And be open to God using you in others' lives. Galatians 6.1. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, perhaps you who have experienced the sexual battle therein, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest once again you too be tempted. I want to finish with two, what I call, I think, big thoughts. And some of you may wish that there were more specific things, steps, whatever, but I th I'm fully convinced that at the heart of change and purity are these two principles. Number one, that the greater you delight in and enjoy God in fellowship with him, the more satisfied you are in that, the less you will be drawn toward sexual sins. The pleasure of sexual sin draws us because we have not experienced the infinitely greater pleasures of God nearly enough. Several verses, Proverbs 2 again, remembering the covenant, the love, as we've sung about today, the magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, and let that be a powerful motivation. But also Matthew 5, 8, that, the pure in heart are the ones who are blessed, and the blessing is that they see God. Now, in being made, in being saved, we are given a pure and holy standing before God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, which we couldn't even be saved without that seeing of God. But that's not the totality of all that can be seen about God and enjoyed. And so we still must battle for practical purity. Because the pure are heart in that sense of just practical fleshly working, the more we will see God. Garrett Kell, seeing God is both our eternal destiny and our daily delight. And again, Kell, kill your love for sin or sexual sin or sexual sin will kill your love for God. Psalm 73 is one place that we can look where we just see the psalmist enjoying. There's nothing more in heaven the psalmist wants than to enjoy God who holds him by his right hand. And nothing on earth, certainly, that we desire more 
than to be with God, to know him, to walk closely with him. He concludes all of that with, it's good, it's enough, it's sufficient to be near my God. A few others' words here. Kelligan, your fulfillment as a person is not dependent on being sexually or romantically fulfilled. You can have the best spouse on the planet and enjoy the most fulfilling sex life imaginable in that covenant, yet this fact remains. If your heart is not satisfied in God, it will wander to find satisfaction elsewhere. Spouses can be wonderful helpers, but they are sorry saviors. Jesus alone can satisfy something as large as the human soul. C.S. Lewis, a familiar one. It would seem that our Lord finds their desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures most of the time fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Great word picture. One more, Greg Morse. Abstinence, self-control, chastity, cleanliness of eyes and heart for their own sake are too small a reward. The appropriate end of boat crafting, this is his word picture, is not to admire vessels sitting on dry land, not work and discipline for their own sake. God means for us to sail. He means for us to feel the sea wind in our faces, to gaze upon the headwaters of all of life and beauty himself, to see sunsets we've never seen before, and realize that far more beauty remains to be seen. Christian, God offers you something higher to see his glory. As sure as lust distorts the world, purity re-enchants it. As lust dims beauty and hides God's face in night, purity cleanses our vision and dawns day upon the face of Christ for us to behold him. And just a reminder, our eyes cannot serve two masters. Longing for God, longing for intimacy with him, longing to be near him and enjoy him is the best antidote to lust and longing for bodily pleasures of this life. And secondly and finally, and this eliminates like five other closing points. Fix your eyes, and I'm gonna keep playing out the seeing God, the blessed are the pure in heart for they see God. Fix your eyes on Christ, on the cross, on the gospel. I might even specifically say on your union with him that comes in salvation. Grow in your understanding of God's design for your sexuality in Christ, with Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. So let me remind you again of 1 Corinthians 6. And you can just see there visually those principles about why sexual purity is so massively important and what we do with our body is so massively important to God and the closing commands of flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. 1 John 3 Again, doesn't literally say sexual purity, but I think it's within this. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in this 
in him will purify himself just as Jesus Christ is pure. John Piper, closing thought. Next to closing thought. Not only do all the misuses of our sexuality serve to conceal or distort the true knowledge of God in Christ, but it also works powerfully the other way around. The true knowledge of God in Christ serves to prevent the misuse of sexuality. So on the one hand, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know Christ more fully. Think about that. And on the other hand, knowing Christ more fully is designed as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. My conviction is that the better you know the supremacy of Christ, the more sacred and satisfying and Christ-exalting your sexuality will be. God gives each of us one body, gives each of us one incredible gift of purity in our youth. And then for many of us, if he gives us the gift of earthly marriage, one spouse, one covenant, one person to enjoy all the pleasures God has intended for this life. But bigger than that, for all of us married or single, one bridegroom who is coming, one eternal covenant with him, one enjoying of all the pleasures of intimacy with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And in the meantime, in preparation, purify yourself as he is pure. Father, thank you for your truth. We've packed way so much in and more that we could have said, but I pray that you will take the truths we have looked at today, so many of them profoundly shape and mold us Call all of us who are in sexual sin out of it to a genuine, lasting, full repentance and turning from it that we would be a people who are truly holy, reserved and guarded, keeping within all of the boundaries that you have given us so that we maximally enjoy the pleasures of God, both now and forever. Amen.